these venues, you might find that sometimes people don't always talk like they do in the textbooks, you know? Like if you're learning English, you learn, hello, how are you? I am fine, thank you. But say you are maybe somebody who moved to the States and you're trying to learn English and you did it when Dunkin' Donuts was doing the campaign and they were advertising their frozen hot chocolate and you tried to be able to understand what that was for a time. Or even perhaps if you speak the same language and there's different nuances depending on the region you live in. Let's just pick a hypothetical situation. Say somebody graduates Bible college in Chicago and moves to New Jersey, and somebody offers him a pie. And he's thinking, oh, it probably comes with whipped cream. No, no, no. It comes with sausage and peppers and a whole bunch of toppings because it's what we call a pizza pie. Language is an interesting but wonderful thing. But we can use it and learn about it in two different, top, in two different venues, focusing on the same subject matter learning the same English language. And in a similar vein this morning, I want to take a look at the topic of Christian service from the book of Philippians. And I want to take a look at it in a similar way by looking at the lives of two men, Timothy, who you probably are very familiar with, and Epaphroditus, which sometimes we are less familiar with. And as you turn to the book of Philippians, you'll notice that Paul, as he's been writing this letter to this church, has been a model for Christian joy. And he has been basically rejoicing in many different circumstances, both the fact that he's under house arrest in Rome, the growth of the Philippian congregation, and also the ways that he exhorts them to grow in Christ. He's rejoicing in all these things. But at the end of chapter 2, he focuses on two men and rejoices in the exemplary godly men that they are and how they are even instructive for us today. And hence, that's why our sermon is creatively named today, Two Examples of Christian Service. Two examples of Christian service. Now, one more thing before we pray for our sermon this morning. When you hear Christian service, a lot of times we hear, oh, that's what the full-time pastors who get paid to do ministry do. But I want you to change that thinking. Think of Christian service as serving Christ for any Christian. Christian service, serving Christ. We're all good on that? All right, wonderful. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time this morning. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the book of Philippians. I pray, Father God, that today you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things out of your word. I pray, Father God, would you help me to preach well and to honor you in what I say, and that it might come across clearly, and that you would be glorified in everything said and done here in this church today, and that we, your people, might be edified or built up. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, hopefully by this point, you found the second chapter of Philippians. If not, you can turn there as we begin to read the passage. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19, where it says this, the Apostle Paul writing, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too might be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that, I sh that surely I myself will come too. Verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. This is the second guy I was talking about. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. 
but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Now, we made a pretty big context jump from Psalm, the Psalms last week to Philippians this week, and I gave you a little bit of context, but remember as we're reading this where Paul is located at. He's most likely under house arrest in Rome at the time. There's a few different views, but that's the main one and usually accepted by most people. And he's under house arrest, and if you don't know who the Philippians are, the Philippians are a church that Paul helps start in modern-day Greece. Paul's in modern-day Italy. They're in modern-day Greece. If you don't know where it's at, I encourage you to look up a map. It's great to be able to know where these things are at. And he is writing to them, and you might notice that he is writing in response to the messenger that he received from them. So Epaphroditus is the messenger the Philippians sent to him, and this whole book of Philippians is a response to that whole situation. Now, we are familiar with maybe these things, but the first person I want to focus on in our sermon today is Timothy. You can go ahead and go to that next slide. Timothy. There's a real picture of him right there from the uh, first century. I'm just kidding. But um, Timothy is a young guy. So he's probably, um, when he first joins Paul, probably in his late teenage years or maybe mid-20s at that time. And Paul wants Timothy to accompany him, but it's not recorded here in the book of Philippians. Now, how many of you have heard of the person Timothy before? Okay, most of us have. But if we ask ourselves, when did they first cross paths? That might be a little bit obscure. And so in order to answer that question, I want to take a quick field trip to the beginning of Paul and Timothy's relationship. So go ahead and leave a pen or a, uh, your finger in Philippians and turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Acts is immediately after the gospel accounts. And we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 1 uh, through 5. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. This is recording Paul while he's on one of those missionary journeys where he's going and discipling people and sharing the gospel and churches are getting planted. This is the first instance that he comes across Timothy. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the, el- the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem, referring to the Jerusalem council. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So you notice right here in the middle of one of Paul's traveling missionary trips, he sees Timothy, either he shares the gospel with him, or we don't know the exact details, but from that point on, Timothy comes with him and joins him in the ministry going on from there. So you can flip back to Philippians now. Now, Timothy joining Paul as a young man, we might say, well, there's not much we can learn from him. But actually, according to Philippians, there are many things that we can learn from Timothy. And this morning, that's going to bring us to our first lesson this morning. Our first lesson from Timothy is this. Again, talking about Christian service. Christian service requires a genuine care 
for people. Let me say that one more time. Christian service requires a genuine care for people. Look real fast at chapter 2 of Philippians and verse 19 and 20, where Paul says, again, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I might be cheered of you. He's giving his traveling plans as an update. But then he says this in verse 20, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now take a step back for a second and think for a second about what Paul is saying. Paul is, in our minds, like a spiritual superstar, right? He is somebody who is an apostle. He's the guy who travels all throughout the world preaching for Christ, no matter the opposition, with a boldness that is ferocious for the kingdom of God. And he is able to say of Timothy, I have no one like him. It's quite a huge compliment. But then he continues on, to be able to describe what he means. And he says, Timothy is somebody who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, as he writes to the Philippians. And the words that he uses to be able to describe that is Timothy is of like soul, actually, to Paul, according to Grant Osborne, one commentator on this. But as he is similar to Paul, he is similar in that they both have a genuine care for the Philippian church. Now again, where is Paul right now? He's in, he's in Rome. He's in Rome right now. He's under house arrest. And he, in the middle of house arrest, think about this. If you are under house arrest, do you think you would be thinking about your circumstances or others more? If you're a sinner like me, I would be focused on me right now and my circumstances because if you're under house arrest, things are not going ideally for you in that moment. And yet, in the midst of Paul's challenging circumstances, notice that he's commending Timothy but also saying we both have a genuine care for you. Not just for them as the church, as a supporting church. They don't say, you know what, they're affluent Baptist church in Philippi. Why don't we write them a letter because they pay our salary, right? No, he's not doing that. Instead, he genuinely cares about their well-being, how they're doing as a church. Are they walking with Christ? Are they honoring him? Are they loving one another? Are they walking in unity? Or is there bitterness, strife, envy, and immaturity on the part of the Philippians? But notice that that is something that is commended by Paul in Timothy's life, but it's something that we should seek to emulate as well. Because genuinely caring for other believers is something that is essential no matter where God deploys you as a Christian. We know that God gives each person a spiritual gift so that your spiritual life is not going to look the exact same as mine because God calls us to follow Christ, but sometimes in different ways. But no matter our circumstances, we should seek to genuinely care for one another and one another's well-being. Because there's a difference between saying, hey, how's it going? Just to be able to pat yourself on the back and say, hey, do you see that? I ask so-and-so how they're doing. But if we're honest about our hearts in certain circumstances, sometimes we do that just to be able to feel good about ourselves. Now, quick question, is that genuinely caring for that person or genuinely comparing for ourselves? Ourself. And there's a difference between the two of these things. And it's something that we should bear in mind as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we should have a genuine care for the well-being of each other, that we want not just myself and my own life to succeed in Christ, but I want the entire church and our entire area to come to faith in Christ and to succeed, having a genuine care for them. This is something that Jesus even emulated at the cross. When he was being spiked and put down to the cross, you remember what he was crying out over and over and over again? 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If I was being crucified, I would care, not have a care in the world about anybody else probably in that moment. But Christ so genuinely cared for the lives of people that in the midst of literally excruciating pain, he, he cries out, Father, forgive them because they're the ones that are really spiritually hurting. He knows the end. He knows he's going to rise from the dead. But it's something that we should remember. And as we seek to genuinely care for one another, one quick application is that we need to be able to have enough rest in our life to be able to genuinely care for each other. Because when we get so overwhelmed with productivity and busyness, it's sometimes hard for us to be able to genuinely care for somebody. If you are physically, socially, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted, how well do you think are you going to care for somebody? Not as well. And that's something that we need to remember as Christians, and that's important why it's important and crucial for us to have times of rest so that I don't come off of a three-hour conversation into another one when I am zonked trying to be able to care for you. We need time to recharge our batteries, and everyone's different in that. But this is not the only lesson on Christian service. Remember, serving Christ, that's the meaning. But that's not the only lesson on Christian service that we have from the life of Timothy, actually. And that brings us to our second main lesson this morning from Timothy again, which is this. Christian service must honor Christ above all else. Christian service must honor Christ above all. This comes from verses 21 through 22 where Paul continues on speaking about Timothy, and he says this, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me and trust in the Lord that I shortly will come myself also. Now, just quick detail on that. Paul, he's awaiting his trial, most likely, is what he's referring to, saying, I'll wait to see how it goes with me. This is his first trial, and it's likely that he's released from that, so it's not the imprisonment of 2 Timothy, where he eventually does die. So there's a difference there. But when it comes to Timothy and focusing on the lesson for Christian service, do you notice how Paul describes Timothy to everyone else? So first he commends him as saying you genuinely care for people, but then verse 22 or um, 21 says, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not sure exactly who he's referring to. This might mean other gospel workers in Rome. It might mean other Christians in the area. But whoever Timothy is being compared to, everybody else is seeking their own selfish interests. And Timothy is exemplary on the other side, contrasted, because he is focusing on Christ above all and honoring him, his agenda, man's agenda. And that's what makes Timothy stand out. And that is something that is instructive for us as well because a question that we should all ask our own hearts as we seek to serve Christ is this. Who am I aiming to please with my life? Who am I really aiming to please? Because there's, there are many times where we might have a masquerade of godliness, but on the inside, we really just want to serve ourselves. And that's something that's true for all people at times, and that's why this is instructive for us, because we are imperfect as people, but God is still at work in us. And that's why this is instructive for us, because of the fact that as we seek to serve Christ, whether it's in our families, whether it's in a ministry, whether it's in your workplace, wherever you are, are we aiming to serve Christ? 
Have you ever met somebody that has their own soapbox that they seek to be able to proclaim in every circumstance? Yeah. We all have things that we prefer. We all have thoughts that we would like to be able to put forth. I do myself as well. I'm not saying that we're perfect. But what I am saying is when it comes to what we are known for, are we known for pushing Christ's agenda above all else or are we known for pushing our agenda above all else? And Christ is kind of, you know, if you get to it. Secondly, And this is something that is instructive for us as well because when it comes to serving Christ, notice how there is a contrast between serving the personal interests of those in verse 21 and serving those of Jesus Christ. And that is informative to us because it shows that there are times, not universally, but there are times when Christ wants us to do this and our heart wants us to do that over there. Now again, John Piper has some great stuff about how our greatest desire should be for Christ. That's what we long for, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. That's definitely true. But there are times, though, in our sinful hearts where our own flesh and our own heart wants to be able to go left, and Christ calls us to be able to go right. And that's instructive because as Christians, we can't go through our spiritual life just doing what we feel like all the time. At some point, there's going to be something in Scripture that will hit you that you won't like. Believe me, it happens to me a lot. There's a lot of times we read Scripture and you're like, that's encouraging. You know, I'm born again in Christ. I'm a new creation. And those things are true. But there are also times where God says, love your neighbor as yourself. We say, well, Lord, that's, that's a lot more difficult. And that's okay, but it's supposed to be that way. Christianity is supposed to be easy. If Christianity is a cakewalk for you, Maybe let's talk. Maybe let's get more into Scripture. Maybe let's get more into prayer because there are easy seasons and there are hard seasons, but it should never be a stroll that's perfectly easy where you say, everything I want to do is exactly what God wants me to do every single day. That's why we, it's so important for us to get in the Scriptures to constantly be encouraged by the truth and be rebuked in the areas that we're wrong because none of us are perfect, myself included. And that's why we should seek to be able in Christian service, whether we're serving in the nursery, whether we are loving our family, and that's all we have time for, but that's what God called you to, and in seeking to be able to honor Christ as you do that. No matter our context, we should remember in Christian service, we must honor Christ above all else, because if that's not the case, it's no longer Christian service. It's service to something else. Remember that. Remember the life of Timothy. And while Christ's agenda may be our focus in Christian service, this isn't something that can just be true for a temporary season in life. And that brings us to our third lesson from Timothy this morning. Lesson number three is this. Christian service requires faithfulness. Christian service requires faithfulness. Again, get it in your head. Christian service doesn't mean working for the church. Maybe it means being faithful and loving your spouse. Maybe it means serving your family. Maybe it means being, going through life right now and honoring Christ. But whatever circumstance you're called to serve Christ in, it will require faithfulness, and that's a good thing. And this point comes from verse 22, where Paul says this, but you know Philippians, you the Philippian church in Macedonia, you know Timothy's proven worth. They've seen his life and they've seen him in action in ministry. And he says this, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. So you see that Paul is like the father figure. He's mentoring and training up Timothy. And Timothy is like the son learning from him, but being faithful alongside him in ministry. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I think in questions. And so when I came across this 
verse, I said, you know, how long has Timothy been with Paul at this point? And again, there's a few different thoughts on it, but suffice it to say, most estimates think that he's been with them for about a decade at this point, which is a good amount of time. A decade is a long time. Now, for some of us, we might say, decade isn't that long, you know. I've been in Christian service, or I've, you know, been in Christian service by serving my Christian spouse for longer than that, you know, so that's really nothing compared to me. But think about the quality of service that Paul and Timothy were doing. Think about the kind of crazy stories that Paul had on his missionary journeys. This is the kind of guy who would have a boldness to be able to go into new cities, and God would tell him in every city there's going to be persecution and difficulty and opposition to your work. It's going to be hard for the entire time. And he says, all right, God's willing, let's go. Kept going. That's the kind of guy that Timothy is walking with. He's not going through a Christian life that's a cakewalk. He is going through something that's difficult, but he's able to be faithful throughout his life. Ten years. It's a long time. Now, Timothy's also a young guy when Paul first calls him to accompany him in ministry. We don't know his exact age, but he's likely towards the, his late teens or his, his mid-twenties at that point, somewhere in there. So he's a young guy, kind of similar to myself. And if I'm honest, the stereotype for a lot of young guys sometimes, again, not universally, Calvary's fantastic, but in the world sometimes it's, you know, we're not super helpful, we're not super dependable in some circumstances, if we're honest. And sometimes that's true. But one thing that's also really incredible about Timothy is that he is faithful and competent. He's not just walking around holding Paul's hand, sucking his thumb, walking throughout the eastern Mediterranean world saying, what, what, what are we going to do today? He's not doing that. And I want to give you one example. Again, I'm really trying to hold back from doing a whole study on Timothy. I encourage you to do it. Look at Timothy. He's not Jesus, but as far as he follows Christ, imitate him. But one instance I want to give you a reference to is 1 Thessalonians 3. 1 Thessalonians 3. Again, we've covered some of this before, but in 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul speaks a little bit about what Timothy did in one of his missionary journeys. It says this in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel, to establish and exhort you, the Thessalonian church, in your faith that no one might be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that you were destined for this. Now, the context of this is Paul's traveling throughout the Greek world at the time, and he's in Athens with other co-workers, and he hears that there's trouble in Thessalonica. Not just trouble like, oh, the church is voting on what color we should uh, paint the lights or something like that, but more so, they are experiencing persecution. And he says, you know what? We're going to send someone to you, but it's not going to be me. Do you know who he sends? Timothy. What does that tell you about Paul's trust of Timothy? He trusts him a lot to be able to hear from a church that he has planted in Thessalonica with extreme persecution to be able to say, I trust you, young guy. Go there, encourage the church, exhort them, and build them up. It's a pretty tall order. It's a pretty incredible thing. And we see that Timothy was faithful to be able to do that. So we see that in this section here, Paul is kind of writing, he has been faithful and he's continuing to do so. But From that section in Thessalonians, we see that Paul is working with Timothy, and Timothy has been faithful through many different circumstances as well. 
One other instance in the New Testament, you see Timothy be faithful to serve with Paul in Corinth, which is the modern-day equivalent of something like Las Vegas on steroids. Think about say, grabbing a young guy and saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go do a church plant right next to the Las Vegas Strip. You want to come? How many young guys would you trust to be able to do that, right? You might say, I don't know, that's kind of a really dicey situation, right? But for Paul to be able to trust Timothy enough to bring him alongside in ministry in the midst of vast temptation and in Thessalonica in the midst of severe persecution shows that Timothy has been faithful, not just in some basic way in life in terms of, you know, he just, you know, writes Paul's uh, itinerary every day, but it shows that he has been faithful in the midst of great persecution and in the face of great temptation, which is commendable and instructive for us as well. Because every single believer in Jesus Christ is promised some form of persecution in their life. It's not always like that in the third world, but if you look at the end of the, the first chapter of uh, Philippians 1, it is appointed for you that you should not only believe in Christ, but also suffer for his sake. It's appointed. It's granted, eschereste, it is granted to you for the sake that you should suffer for Christ and not just believe in him. Timothy's faithfulness is instructive for us because no matter where we're at in life, there's going to be seasons where you're going to have persecution. It's going to be hard to be a Christian. And there's also going to be situations where there's going to be enticements to leave your faith for other things in many different areas. And we should look at Timothy's life again. He's not Jesus. That's our ultimate model. But as far as Timothy follows Christ, we should seek to imitate him as well. And I go to illustrate Timothy's faithfulness because there are others who were not as faithful for a season. Some of them are even recorded. I'm just going to grab my water real fast. One of them is a man named Demas. Demas is recorded in the book of Philemon and also in the letter to the church in Colossae as somebody who served alongside Paul in ministry. Meaning that Paul is working alongside this man, and from some of his prison epistles, it shows that he is working alongside this guy named Demas, right? So we know he's there. But then, later on in Paul's life, toward the end of his life, in 2 Timothy, and Paul's in his second uh, imprisonment, and he's likely going to be put to death after that, later in life, he writes this in 2 Timothy 4.10 about a man named Demas. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What happened to him? He was faithful just for a little while. Now again, I'm not saying that your faithfulness to Christ is grounded only on a works-based salvation that is sinless perfection. That's not what I'm advocating here this morning. But when it comes to walking with Christ, what is important is that we continue to be faithful to Christ, we continue to fight against sin, and we seek to be faithful to Christ to the end. If this is resonating with you, I encourage you, go to Hebrews and do a study on all the passages that exhort the people there to be faithful to the end, to the end, to the end. Because Christianity is not just, I'll be faithful to Christ for a little while, or when I have kids, then I'll start seeking Christ because they need a role model. It is something that whenever you start seeking Christ, henceforth, you seek Christ to the best of your ability and say, God, would you help me in the areas that I'm weak? And trust him to be able to provide. Christian service, no matter your context, requires faithfulness. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's so many passages of Scripture that teach us to be able to seek Christ daily. 
I want to give you three to be able to remember. And I encourage you, if you haven't heard these, or even if you have, to write them down and to meditate on them later this afternoon or early this week when you're doing your devos. Think about this. Luke 9.23, famous verse, one of my favorites. Luke 9.23, he says this. Jesus speaking. If anyone would, follow, would come after me, Jesus, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, does that sound like it's going to be inconvenient for a lot of times? Yeah, it is. But when we seek to be able to lay our life down for the sake of Christ, that's when we truly find it. Self-seeking never satisfies us. That's a whole other sermon. Another reference is Hebrews 3.13. Hebrews 3.13, which says this, But exhort or encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, Meaning, as long as it's not eternity, encourage one another that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We all need encouragement, pastors included, believe me. All of us need encouragement every single day in our walk with Christ that none of us might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look at Demas. His love for the world hardened his heart. And eventually he said, you know what, I'm going to cash in on Christ and go headlong after the world. And he'll be satisfied for a brief amount of time, but afterwards he'll have great regret. And the last reference I want to give to you is from the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 11 says this, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. What does that imply? Daily we need food, sustenance, but also spiritual food, scriptures. And forgive us our debts. Notice that we're not going to be perfect until we're in heaven. That's a good thing. God knows our weakness. God is gracious. God loves you even in the midst of your imperfection and my imperfection. How wonderful is that? But he encourages us, get in the word daily. As much as we need food physically, we need spiritual food. And we need forgiveness for our own sins every day. Faithfulness is essential for serving the Lord in Christian service. We cannot do this on our own strength, but we can rely on the one who is faithful through it all and he will be the one to sustain us. Don't worry about trying to get results quick or take shortcuts to success in your spiritual life. Focus on being faithful to Jesus Christ today and leave the results up to him and you'll be in a good spot. All right, so that's Timothy. Yay! Three lessons from Timothy, but we got two more. The other two lessons on Christian service come from a guy named Epaphroditus. And uh, it's another real picture of him, as you can see up there. Um, but no, I, I chose that one because Epaphroditus was the one who traveled on a journey across Greece and into Italy to be able to be a messenger on behalf of the Philippian church to the one in Rome to encourage Paul in the midst of his imprisonment. That's where he went. And... You might notice by contrast as well, Timothy eventually becomes a pastor. Epaphroditus is just somebody serving Christ who's a faithful layperson, who serves Christ faithfully. That's why I said Christian service isn't just for if you work at the church. It's for any of us. But the fourth lesson we have this morning, and the one from Epaphroditus is this. Lesson number four, Christian service often means hardship. I'll say it again. Christian service often means hardship. Hardship. This is the less popular one when it comes to Christian service. 
But look with me at verse 25 of chapter 2 of Philippians, where it says this, I have thought it necessary to send to you, Paul writing again, Epaphroditus, my brother in Christ, fellow worker in the gospel, fellow soldier fighting the good fight, and your messenger to Paul and minister to my need, because he was coming to bring gifts and to encourage Paul. And it says this in verse 26, For he has been longing for you all, the Philippians, because he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, again, Epaphroditus, he is an incredible guy, and Paul's giving a little bit of his travel plans as well. He's sending, my plan is to be able to send back Epaphroditus to you, and he commends Epaphroditus as a godly man. But what happened to Epaphroditus on the journey is really important. Either on the journey or once he got to Rome, he became ill, deathly ill, the scripture says. Meaning that, again, this is the ancient world, right? It's not like, hey, let's just go jump in an Uber and head to the uh, nearest hospital, right? It's in the ancient world. They had medical care, but it's not nearly as good as what we have today. And in the midst of that, Paul's saying he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What he means by this most likely is that Paul is saying, you know, you have participated in prayer and you've given me finances, but you haven't been with me side by side in ministry. Epaphroditus has. And he commends Epaphroditus as being honorable and being an example to them. But looking at his life, Epaphroditus had it kind of hard though, didn't he? Think about it. You know, if you think about the fact that he's going to do the work of God, if he is, you know, We're assuming he's saved because he's commended as a fellow worker in the gospel and a fellow brother and fellow soldier. If he is already a believer, he belongs to a church, he's going to do God's work to encourage an apostle of Christ. Sounds like he is doing the work of God in some sense. And sometimes we might expect, well, if he is in the center of God's will, shouldn't it be easy? And the answer sometimes is actually no. Not always, but sometimes it's no. And I wanted to highlight this because it's something that is instructive to us and it's something that is evident throughout the scriptures because there's many times where we are serving Christ faithfully and yet hardship comes instead of success. I encourage you to go home and to be able to do a study on where are all the circumstances in the scriptures where somebody was faithful yet something didn't work out as they thought. It's a great study to be able to do. But for today, we have limited time, so we're going on one more field trip. We did one to Acts in the New Testament. I want you to turn to Numbers in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book in the Pentateuch in the Old Testament. Numbers, we're going to chapter 13. And again, leave a marker in Philippians. We're going to Numbers chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 27 through 31. The context for this is the people of God have come out of Egypt, the Israelites, and they are about to go into the promised land, and they send out spies to be able to go investigate the land that God has promised to them. And the section we're taking a look at today, Numbers 13, 27 to 31, is the report that the spies bring back. I want to read it together. Starting again, Numbers chapter 13, starting in verse 27. It says this, And they told him, Moses, the spies tell Moses, we came into the land which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit, meaning it's exceedingly abundant. It's a productive land. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. 
The cities are fortified and very large. And besides that, we see the descendants of Anak there, the giants. And the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Verse 30, but Caleb, one of the spies, quieted the people before Moses and said, well, let's go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we are. You might be saying, Jason, what's the connection here? Think about Israel this time, God's chosen people. He just brought them out of the Exodus with signs and wonders, and they walked through the Red Sea on dry land. God rescued them with signs and wonders, incredible things by the hand of Moses, and they go to investigate the land that God has promised them. You couldn't be more in the will of God to be his chosen people, just delivered, about to go into the land he promised, and then they say, I don't know if we can. There's people there, and they're strong. And their cities are fortified, and they have tall people there, and we don't want to go fight them. We are not able to overcome them. Their trust was on themselves. And you can turn back to Philippians now. But the point I want to make for both Epaphroditus and the difficulty and hardship that he endured and Israel is this. You can be in the center of God's will and still encounter opposition. And that is helpful and instructive to us because it means this, just because you encounter opposition doesn't mean you are doing something wrong. So often we get in our minds that if something goes wrong or something is not an opportunity, then it must not be God's will. And that is not always the case. Now again, quick disclaimer, that doesn't mean the opposite, that every single closed door and every single difficulty, that's God's will as well. For any of us, we need to pray and seek God for wisdom in any situation. He'll guide us. There is no method that you can use to be able to discern the will of God. It's not pray, open door, God's will. Pray, close door, not God's will. It's not the way God works. God says, seek me because I will be the one to guide you through things. Again, think of Israel. The door is closed. If they wanted to go and do a military conquest on their own strength, they would lose. In modern terms, it's a closed door. You can't do that. But God is saying, walk towards that closed door and I will open it. That's the point I'm making. We cannot just say, well, if it's a closed door, it can't be God's will. And if it's an open door, that's God's will. Because there are times where God tells us, walk towards an open door or closed door. And I'll open it on the way once you take steps in obedience, but not before. How many opportunities have we maybe lost in life? to be able to see God work because we're saying, I'm only willing to walk through a closed door. We, or an open door, thank you. <laughs> but I say that because it's true in my life as well for all of us. And it's something that we must remember because if we truly believe in a living God that doesn't just bless what already happens, but who actually answers prayer and can provide if he chooses to, then it means that if he tells us to walk towards a closed door and he'll open it on the way, we must go. And we can't say if there's opposition, can't do it. Because that's what lifeless idols can provide. They bless that which only already occurs. Now again, we don't take this to the extreme but in any circumstance, when we're serving God and we seek his will, we must pray until we get an answer from God and then move, not before. 
And that's why we can't just use open door, closed door as the litmus test for God's will. I've done it at times in my life, and there are times where God says there's an open door. Go through it. If God's done that through your life, bless you. You're not doing something wrong. But we cannot use it as a universal formula to determine the will of God in circumstances because then all that has to happen is something to go wrong. Then it's instantly not God's will. One of the things that has been a huge blessing for me here at Calvary Church is um, God answered a prayer to, for me to be able to come here. And I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I will. I prayed in order to come here when I first came out of college. I didn't want to come here initially. And I said, Lord, if you want me to come here, would you let all the other men fall through and then let the elder board come back and say, we think you're God's man for this church. Both things happen in addition to several other confirmations. So I was the one saying, God, I don't want to do it. So don't think Jason's up here and he's perfect at this. He's not. He's still learning because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, with all that being said, that just leaves us with one final lesson from Epaphroditus. That's lesson number five this morning in Christian service. Lesson number five is this. Christian service sometimes differs from what we expect. Christian service sometimes differs from what we expect. You see the can of sardines? That's not sardines. That's the point up there. But look at the entirety of 25 through 30 in chapter 2 of Philippians. This overlooks the enti- or this looks over the entire section of Epaphroditus. Paul again says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am all the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and that I, Paul, might be less anxious." Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Take a step back and think about Epaphroditus' mindset. He set out from Philippi, the entire church, to represent the church as a messenger and a blessing to the Apostle Paul. And yet he becomes deathly ill. And Paul eventually tells him, Hey, buddy, I love you. You got to go home. Literally, Mr. Mr. Do not be anxious about anything, Philippians chapter 4, is anxious about Epaphroditus. So Paul's got a lot of peace in the Lord, but literally Epaphroditus being sick and deathly ill is something that is not ideal. And so he says, you got to go back home. But what do you think went through Epaphroditus' mind when he heard that? How do you think he felt? Probably not good. He probably felt like an utter failure. I, he probably set out from Philippi saying, I'm going to go bless the Apostle Paul. Let's go, you know? Walking on the Ignatian Way and he gets there to Italy and things go differently, much differently than what he expected. And notice in verse 25, Epaphroditus becomes distressed and he has been distressed. Why? Because you heard he was ill. You notice that little people pleaser link right there? I'm anxious because the church that I'm supposed to represent and bless the Apostle Paul through heard that I'm sick. He's anxious about what they think of him. And that's probably the reason that Paul goes to such lengths to be able to commend him, saying, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and uh, minister to my need, honor such men, because he risked his life for Christ. Let's ask ourselves a question. Is Epaphroditus a failure because he got sick and was sent home? 
I would say no. Does it mean that he was guaranteed outside of the will of God because he got sick? No, the text does not instruct us that. Instead, we see what is sometimes true in our serving of Christ, that sometimes Christian service differs from what we expect, and that's okay. And this is true in the modern world as well. Um, in 2016, I was working at a, church, or a parachurch ministry, a youth camp in China, actually. It's before I came to Calvary. And at that camp, we did English ministry and youth ministry sharing Christ with Chinese students. And we had some volunteers come over from the States, and we had some Chinese interns. So we're doing youth ministry throughout the summer. It's going great. And one day, all the Chinese interns and all of the American volunteers, we decided to go for a bike ride, right? Sounds like fun. So we go on the bike ride. We're cruising through beautiful, beautiful country in north-central China. And we're in a long line, and we get a little bit too close because there's construction work, and then the first person slams on the brakes. You can imagine what happens. We all start slamming on the brakes. But in China, some of the mountain bikes, instead of having the right brake restrict the back wheel, it hits the front wheel instead. And so one of the girls on the team called Anna, she uh, was a good friend, and she clamps hard, hard on the right handlebar, and her front tire locks up. And she goes up and over the top of the handlebars, gets in a little wreck. Now, usually when that happens, you get a few bruises, you can maybe hurt yourself, but usually it's not too bad of a serious injury. But Anna, suffice it to say, I'm not going to go into details, had a severe injury on her leg, severe cut, so much so that she saw it and instantly covered up her eyes because she didn't want to go into extreme shock. And by God's providence, all the Chinese interns for us that summer were medical students. And so we instantly called our camp director. He comes flying up the dirt road. We get her in the car, rush her off to the hospital in Taiyuan, and they send her into surgery, and she is able to basically make it through and have a successful surgery and be okay. But it was a traumatic experience for her. And she couldn't stay in the ministry any longer. She had to go home. She had to recover as soon as she was well enough. But what do you think her mindset was maybe when she got home? She probably told friends and family in her church, I'm going out to do the Lord's work and to be able to share the gospel with Chinese students in Taiyuan, China. When they come back a few weeks early and say, what, what, what happened? Why are you on crutches? What's the major bandage on your leg? How do you think she felt? She probably felt like Epaphroditus. And I share that not to demean her in any way. But that's why it's important. Was she outside of the will of God guaranteed? No. And just because something went catastrophically wrong medically, does that mean that God's not blessing it? No. But so often, what do we do? When we see something go wrong, we think, man, it must be because such and such disobeyed God. We're like Job's friends, even though we know the story. You must have disobeyed God. You must have had something happen. To have something catastrophic happen, that's the way our heart goes. And I'm not saying it's impossible for that to be the case, but it's not a guarantee. And as we serve Christ, it doesn't mean that we're going to get a guaranteed success. Because could God, in his sovereignty and wisdom, stop the accident from happening? All right, we'll do this. Who says yes? Just, I got to double check. I'm a youth pastor. I work with kids. Yeah, he could have. Absolutely. And he didn't. Perhaps because he wanted to accomplish faithful ministry through that circumstance rather than things going according to our plan that we so often think must be God's plan. 
because we thought it and we're Christians. And there are, I say this as well to be an encouragement because there are many faithful Christian brothers and sisters who are serving God utterly faithfully, but we don't see them as people that have a huge social media following or a mega church behind them. But they have been maybe even more faithful to God than some others. But they're not seeing incredible success in that circumstance. And I say that because it doesn't mean you failed. It doesn't mean you did something wrong. You can do everything faithful to God and it doesn't work out. Doesn't mean you did something wrong. If you don't believe me, I encourage you, go home and read the book of Jeremiah. Where was he serving? Jerusalem. What happened at the end of his ministry? Jerusalem was destroyed. But, but didn't he fulfill his ministry faithfully? Yeah, he did. He's commended for it. But the result was that Jerusalem was destroyed. Just because circumstances don't go well doesn't mean you or someone else was unfaithful to God. We must not think that. Otherwise, we're trying to play God and know his mind, which we can't. And when things go wrong according to our plans, which they oftentimes do, and I don't even always respond well. There's many circumstances where I get stressed out and trust in Jason with my whole heart instead of trusting in the Lord with my whole heart. But when these things happen, we have two choices. We can either stress out because my plan did not make it into God's reality, or we can say, all right, God, I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I wish this didn't happen, but I know that you're a loving God, and I know that you know better, and I know that you work all things for your good, and your good includes the good of every person in the world. He's a good God. We can trust him. It's scary. We're not in control, but we can trust him. God's focus is not always about effectiveness, coolness, or numbers, but on faithfulness and being faithful to God in our Christian service. One final um, uh, illustration. I have an aunt who lives in Kansas. I'll be moving out much closer to her. And she is a believer in Jesus Christ. God bless her. And two of my cousins are severely uh, special needs. They need a lot of attention, a lot of help. And we might, from a worldly perspective, say, you know what? Because of that, you know, why aren't you doing something else in ministry? Why aren't you doing something else that's fruitful in our eyes? But maybe God's will for her is to be faithful in loving her family. And that there will be a great reward in heaven for her for being faithful to the ministry that God called her to, rather than the one that seems attractive to the world. Faithfulness is better than anything else. Be faithful in your Christian service. It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. And I'm going to try to wrap it up because I don't want to go too much longer. So our Christian service, we should remember to emulate Timothy in the three lessons we got from him. First off, Christian service requires a genuine care for people. You're not going to be perfect at it. You need to rely on God's grace to be able to do it. But it's something that we all must remember. Secondly, Christian service honors Christ above all all, and that must be the case. We cannot seek to be able to say, I serve Jason above all, and Christ is secondary. He must be number one. Thirdly, Christian service requires faithfulness, sometimes for decades, sometimes for long seasons of drought, sometimes for many years of discouragement, but it requires faithfulness, and God will not overlook the good that we have done. The world will not tell you that, but he will not forget. I forget things every single day. God does not. He never forgets. And in our Christian service, we should also emulate Epaphroditus. He's not in full-time vocational ministry, but he's a faithful man of God who went out to be able to do God's work. And from him, we remember lesson four, Christian service often means hardship, and that's okay. 
You're not doing something wrong, guaranteed. It doesn't mean that God doesn't like you. And lastly, lesson five, Christian service often differs from what we expect. Sometimes it's different than what we expect, and that's okay. And God's still in control, and he's good, and we can trust him wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly. And ultimately, we don't know if our lives are going to be filled with fruitfulness like Timothy. That's what we all hope. We all hope that everything turns out fruitful and everything goes well. But sometimes our lives are like Epaphroditus. But when we get to heaven, Christ will reward us according to what we have been faithful to and what he has called us to, not how successful we are in the eyes of others here in this life. You have a heavenly father. He loves you. He will reward you for your faithfulness. Serve him faithfully and don't forget it, Calvary Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your goodness and the fact that your word is instructive, Lord Jesus, and guides us. I pray, Lord, that you would allow your word to encourage us in the ways that we need and also to correct and rebuke us in a spirit of gentleness in the areas where we are not And God, I pray that for every single person here that we might seek to be able to say at the end of the day, I serve Christ. I don't do these things for my own glory or because I love my job at certain circumstances in life, Lord, but rather we seek to serve Christ above all and at the end of the day, we we trust that that is enough and that we shall be rewarded. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. amen.